Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we look at NASA's next generation of space telescopes and the cosmic questions that astronomers hope they will answer. But first, we look to the future of synchrotron light sources, perhaps the most versatile of the big science facilities. Synchrotrons and free electron lasers are essential tools for scientists working in a broad range of fields, including biology, chemistry, and material science. To chat about the future of these amazing facilities, I'm joined down the line by the physicist Adrian Mancuso, who is the new physical science director at the UK's Diamond Light Source Synchrotron Lab. Hi, Adrian. Congratulations on your new appointment, and welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. So, Adrian, you spent much of your career at synchrotron and free electron laser facilities. Can you describe these facilities and, and what they offer to scientists? Yeah, so both synchrotrons and X-ray free electron lasers are essentially very bright sources of X-rays with different properties, um, but basically very bright sources of X-rays. And they allow us to look at the structure and the dynamics of matter to understand how it works and how it functions. Um, typically on the atomic scale, but on, also on many different length and time scales. The real challenge of talking about these these wonderful machines is that they're so broad and you can do so much science that that uh, uh, you can talk all day about many different things and not hit <laughs> not hit most of the stuff that's even exciting for some people. So so they're really a versatile tool uh, to look at matter and and for help us to understand the world around us. And Adrian, you've just finished a stint as group leader and leading scientist at the single particles, clusters, and biomolecules, and serial femtosecond crystallography instrument at the European XFEL. So, so what are some of the scientific highlights of your time at that facility uh, in Hamburg, Germany? Oh, that's a great question. As there's, we're really lucky. So this is a this instrument, this one instrument, is actually a microcosm of what I just said. There are maybe three or four broad science classes of interest. One is looking at the structure of biomolecules um, and their dynamics, and that can be done using crystallography, what's called serial crystallography, looking at very small crystals and watching how biomolecules evolve in time, for example, when a drug interacts with them and watching how that happens or how they undergo change when exposed to optical light, for example, um, uh, biomolecules involved in photosynthesis, hitting them with an optical laser, starting some change and watching how that changes. And it's a whole, it's an increasingly new way to start thinking about uh, structural biology, not just the structure, but the dynamics. Um, the holy grail of, of that is to take it to its limit. So instead of having to have crystals, is to try and look at single particles that are non-crystalline because the process of crystallizing biomolecules is a bit like cooking. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and you don't always know why. Um, and so if we, one has enough photons to look at single particles, one can remove that step and open up a whole new world of things. We're not there yet. We're learning what the resolution limits. We're moving in that direction. And... Um, and it's not even clear whether we'll reach interesting resolutions with single particles of biomaterials or not. 
what we've learned on the way is looking at single particles of material science samples. So, for example, uh, metal nanoparticles, small nanoparticles, for example, that could be used in catalysis or, or other processes. And we can now look at those, determine the size, the shape, actually the entire size, shape, distribution of the population and say something about what they look like on the nanometer scale um, uh, from that entire population. So that's some of the science. So the other thing we can do with X-ray free electron lasers is the, the, use the time structure at the European XFEL, which has pulses that are spaced uh, less than a microsecond apart in a burst, then a big gap, and then another burst. And we can use that burst of very bright pulses spaced less than a microsecond apart to watch um, stochastic processes in materials. For example, uh, a crack propagating through a material or um, how a metallic foam evolves as a function of temperature or pressure or how a, a bubble forms in a fluid um, uh, and cavitation processes. And we've just started doing those experiments too. And these are incredibly exciting, um, high contrast microscopy images of, of st truly stochastic processes where you can watch one instance and a different instance and another instance uh, and make sense of that rather than trying to, to take an average at every little time step along the way. Um, which is not possible for something like crack formation, where each crack is different, but it but it does have, but but understanding how each crack propagates can still bring you to a, a greater whole understanding of the process. Yeah, so it's super broad, and uh, and and there's a lot of uh, while it while it's an instrument centered around uh, biology more or less. Actually, all of the 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 most recent stuff has been about material science and, and leveraging physics for, for engineering materials and other such things. Very exciting. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I'm guessing that a lot of, of, of basic fundamental science is done at these facilities, but it also sounds to me that, um, that it, scientists working in industry, in um, you know, f pharmaceutical companies, um, uh, developing high-tech materials, uh, they do, uh, would, uh, would you count them amongst your users at a facility like Diamond or uh, the European Axfel. Absolutely true at Diamond, and Diamond hasn't, you know, it's actually one of the attractions for me was to see the, the really strong engagement with industry, um, uh, not just in pharma, but in materials and engineering. Uh, European Axfel is a bit of a younger facility, um, and we're just starting actually at my instrument, SPBSFX, to engage um, with some industrial companies that wish to do, you know, research that, 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 that furthers their aims as well. And I think that's a really important part of these facilities is engaging with industry because we 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 not don't just do fundamental research but we also provide knowledge that allows uh, you know people to change the world around us in a positive way and one of those ways is to engage with industry where products are made or services are offered that can that can improve the world around us and great examples you know and, and uh, battery technology, understanding magnetism so that we can store more data uh, per unit er, per unit energy, uh, right, stored. So these sorts of things are or better, more reliable, more robust materials so we don't have to replace them as often. Um, and these these are things that benefit from, from wrestling with the fundamental science, but then, you know, uh, partnering with people that can turn those into into things that, 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 that change the world around us. And you've just joined the UK's uh, Diamond Light Source as its uh, physical science director. What does your new job entail and, and what plans do you have for the future? Yeah, well, my, the, the first plans are just to uh, 
observe because Diamond is already a successful facility. There's uh, there's so much going on, and the breadth of science is much broader than 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 uh, my experience here at European XFEL. And I want to learn uh, this whole this whole host of things that are going on before I uh, before I start tinkering around at the edges because uh, it's a really superlative facility, uh, has a wonderful reputation in the community, and I'm really happy to be part of it. I think the big picture part of what I want to do though is there are synergies between XFELs and synchrotrons, and I think we can do um, we can find those more reliably um, and, and use that that connection better. So I think there's all sorts of science that that, for example, this understanding of the um, size and shape distributions of material nanoparticles that we can do at an XFEL. Um, but there are other parts of the story of these nanoparticles mapping out their strain properties, for example, which are much better done at a place like Diamond and, and, and making those connections between, between researchers and those connections to application that straddle more than one facility I'm excited about. Um, but I'm going to watch and make sure I understand things before I, before I get too excited. And what's the, um, what's the, the sort of fundamental difference between a, a, synch a synchrotron facility um, like Diamond and an X-ray free electron laser is it is it just the the wavelength of the light the the wavelength tends to be longer at a synchrotron than at an XFEL or are there other um, differences as well? Right, the wavelengths can be the same. So at European XFEL, we operate from uh, you know less than a keV all the way up to twenty something kilo electron volt photon energy. So there's proper hard X-rays in there, and synchrotrons like Diamond offer that as well. What's really different uh, is the is the brightness. So the number of photons per unit area per per unit solid angle per unit time per bandwidth um, that and the time structure. So, a, so Diamond will have uh, pulses that are, that are longer than an FEL, and most applications will treat that as a continuous source of X-rays and will integrate over time and, and make a measurement. An XFEL produces very bright, short duration, so tens of femtoseconds duration pulses, and we will treat most of those as individual events, and we will measure, make a measurement with each single pulse that we will, you know, we will work. Um, we'll wrestle with uh, statistically afterwards. So you may measure many thousands or hundreds of thousands or occasionally millions of events that we make, make sense of there. The, the, you know, the x-rays are the same. They're just, uh, they're just more and in a very much shorter period of time. And that has certain advantages for some science, particularly time-resolved science, where we want to watch ultra-fast processes. And and what about the the geometry of the of the facilities? Because a, a synchrotron is essentially a circle. I mean, if anybody's seen one, they're you know they tend to be like a donut like um, building or or possibly a donut underground. Whereas uh, an XFEL is a is a linear accelerator. Does that put constraints on um, you, you know? For example, could you have many more beam lines on a synchrotron? than on an XFEL because you can yeah. sort of take the uh, t take the light off it you know all the way around the circle no it's a brilliant observation I mean, and that's exactly the heart of the strategic challenge of XFELs and synchrotron or the strategic advantage of synchrotrons and the strategic challenge of XFELs so exactly an x-ray free electron laser is a linear accelerator that necessarily means there's only typically a handful of scientific end stations at the end of it so in the case of the european XFEL, we have six operating end stations at the end of three beam lines. That means we can do three experiments simultaneously. And what that means is this, the six experiments that we have 
um, have to cover the breadth of science that we want to do here. They're, they're much more like Swiss army knives than, than specialized tools. And that adds a certain overhead to the experiments we can do. And, you know, there's a certain challenge, um, what we can choose to do and, and what not, and how we can realize that, notwithstanding the superlative properties of the radiation. A synchrotron is a wonderful partner to an XFEL in that sense because a synchrotron does have many, many beam lines. Diamond, I think, has a, you know, many tens of beam lines. Um, and what that means is you can build specialized instrumentation for a given field of science and a given application. And, and you, then you can do that just so much better and much more efficiently. And, and so you can imagine doing uh, these, two, these two kinds of facilities working really well in tandem together because they can address different aspects of the same scientific story. Um, yeah, brilliant question. Very nice. And um, the, speaking of the, uh, I suppose, the accelerator at Diamond, there is a proposal to upgrade the, the Diamond synchrotron to Diamond 2. What, what changes would that involve um, in terms of the facility? Is it, would it be a big change? And, and what would the benefits be to users? Yeah, it's a significant upgrade, um, and it's a it's a large scale upgrade that will that will take you know some time to uh, change the machine. But what what it what it will do is it will mean that Diamond moving to Diamond Two will become more bright, so more X rays per unit area, per unit time, per unit solid angle, per bandwidth. And this means we can see, for example, smaller things, see things on a faster time scale. Uh, perhaps make more measurements per unit experiment time. And we can actually start to think about some of the techniques we've learned from XFELs, measuring very large volume data sets and making sense of it in a statistical sense and bringing those to the storage ring as well, but bringing that benefit of having specialized instrumentation to, to bright X-rays. So it's a really exciting time. And I'm an imaging person, so, so a brighter a brighter source for imaging is fantastic because that means improved contrast, potentially improved resolution, uh, or weaker scattering samples, or you know just collecting more data on a, on a greater greater variety of samples so that we can draw more meaningful statistical conclusions about you know uh, an ensemble or a population of of things that we want to look at, and 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 so Diamond Two is really exciting, and uh, and I I think it's a really um, it will bring all manner of benefits to most of the users of the facility. And and in a synchrotron, the, the light is essentially given off by the electrons as they're accelerated around the synchrotron. When, when you say the light is going to be brighter, does that mean you're going to have more electrons in the synchrotron? Or are there changes that you're doing um, <clears throat> using the same, type, you know, same sort of electron flux to get more light out? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, actually don't know if the current changes in the in the Diamond Two um, uh, design. What will change is essentially the um, what's called the emittance. So, in other words, the electron beam itself will also be uh, will, will will change because of the the structure of the magnets that are steering it around the ring, and and this magnetic design, this next generation of magnetic design, essentially allows for the electrons to behave uh, in that more. Um, correlated way and the light to come out brighter. Um, yeah, the, the storage current, I don't know, the storage current might go up as well. I know the electron energy will go up as well, which has some advantage as well for certain experiments. So uh, yeah, so it really does go all the way back to the source. And I think the machine team at Diamond uh, are quite, quite rightly considered to be really good at what they do because they've thought really hard about this and it's an exciting design. 
And and you mentioned briefly your own research uh, as physical science director. Um, do, do you get to do your own research, or do you spend most of your time directing? I think I'm going to spend all the most of my time directing, but I'm going to try. I, I'm going to try and uh, take on a couple of students in collaboration with colleagues and do some imaging research. One, because it's super exciting uh, what's happening at Diamond for imaging um, and, you know, fundamental, can, what can we see? How small, how low can we go? Can we see this? And also because I, I see, at least in imaging, there are wonderful opportunities to exploit between XFELs like the European XFL and Diamond Light Source. And I already have a number of collaborators where we want to look at some, some nanoparticles together and we see different ways to look at this. Um, so I, I would like to keep my finger in that research pie. It has the added advantage of keeping me honest as a director because if, uh, if my research is, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, are at the coalface of what's going on and I have students and myself somewhere near the coalface, then I'm, I think I'm forced to be more honest as a director and make good decisions, which I, which I hope to do. And, I mean, there are a lot of, of synchrotrons uh, around the world um, and I suppose an increasing number of, of X-Fells as well. Um, would I be right to think that sort of the, the demand for their use is infinite? Um, we could build many more of them and and scientists would find lots more uses and lots more research uh, that they could do and and industry as well. Yeah, I think infinite might be a bit far, but I think the demand is strong. All of these facilities are oversubscribed. Diamond is oversubscribed. Uh, European XFEL is massively oversubscribed. There is a lot of demand from scientists in universities and laboratories to do fundamental research as well as from the industrial community to do more and more with these these sources and 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 that's you know that's uh it's exciting in some sense it's great because of course we get to via our processes and our committees pick the very best science to do on these machines but the demand is absolutely there well that's great thanks adrian congratulations again on your on your new appointment and um i hope things go to plan with with diamond two i'm sure they will thanks for being on the podcast thanks very much astronomy in 2022 has been dominated by the successes of nasa's james webb space telescope which began capturing spectacular images of the cosmos in July. This year, American astronomers have also been digesting the contents of the 614-page Pathways to Discovery in Astronomy and Astrophysics for the 2020s, which is a decadal survey that's published by the U.S.'s National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. The science journalist Keith Cooper has written a feature article about the decadal survey for Physics World, and he joins me down the line from Wiltshire. Hi, Keith. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Uh, Thanks for having me on the podcast. So, Keith, what is a a, a decadal survey and and why do uh, American astronomers come up with one every every 10 years? I always find decadal surveys to be a really exciting time because it's a, as the name suggests, it's a review uh, of the next 10 years of the aims and objectives in various sciences. Um, so the decadal survey that we're going to be talking about is the astrophysics decadal survey. Um, and that deals with space telescopes and, and space missions that are going to um, study the universe beyond our own solar system. And 
you know, it's always fascinating when the when the decadal survey comes out and you get to see, you know, what the objectives and what the upcoming missions are going to be, because then you can start to dream and really look forward to the kind of astronomy that we're going to be doing in the future. Um, there is a European equivalent, for example, the European Space Agency's Terra Novi 2030 plus strategic roadmap. It's, it's, it's basically a roadmap for where um, astronomy and astrophysics is going to be going, at least in the next 10 years. But it's, their conclusions go far beyond just 10 years time. So what's the, the current status of, of astronomy in the U.S. today? Um, for example, NASA's space telescopes. I mentioned that James Webb has been a huge success, but do they provide adequate coverage today across the wavelengths that are of interest to astronomers? Not entirely. Um, and it's becoming a little bit of a worry because the, most of the space telescopes that we have are beginning to age. Hubble launched 32 years ago in 1990. We know that's had difficulties over the years. Uh, NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory mission launched 23 years ago. Uh, the Spitz infrared mission ended in 2020. Um, so we don't really have uh, coverage into the far infrared at the moment. Um, the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope is 14 years old. And, and while there are a number of smaller missions that have launched recently, for example, the, uh, the Imaging X-ray Polarimetry Explorer, which launched last December, um, the New Star mission is also a, a small X-ray telescope. A, a lot of the big space telescopes that NASA have launched are beginning to age, and there's a worry that within the next 10 years, they, you know, they could all break down. And especially with Hubble, it's had the servicing missions with the space shuttle. There's no way to fix it now because there's no space shuttle. And with Hubble especially, it's the only space telescope that we have at the moment that can see into the ultraviolet, which is important for astronomers who want to see energetic phenomena, uh, you know, hot, young, blue stars, or certain behaviors around active black holes. And without that UV coverage, um, they're, you know, they're really blinded. We can't observe UV from the ground because the atmosphere absorbs it. Um, so it's starting to get critical that, that NASA and the European Space Agency and JAXA and the Canadian Space and all the agencies around the world start thinking about the next, the next generation of, of space telescopes that are going to take us at least through to the, the middle of this century and, and perhaps beyond into the, the 2070s even. And and in terms of the decadal survey, how how is it approached? Um, these gaps in in astronomers' view of the universe. What what sort of approach um, have the authors taken in terms of uh, uh, suggesting missions? Um, and 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 what 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 are the themes and objectives of uh, of some of the suggestions that have been made? Well, it's really interesting, Hamish. When I was writing the article and speaking to some of the authors of the report, the amount of self-criticism, maybe, of the way that decadal surveys have been handled in the past. They, they acknowledged that JWST sucked up a huge amount of the budget um, to the point that other missions fell by the wayside because there just wasn't enough money to go around. Um, JWST cost over $10 billion, and it had all the bells and whistles thrown at it. Uh, and, and it's been, you know... Um, it's doing remarkably well now. Um, it was a complex launch, but everything went smoothly. And now we're getting the benefit of that with some incredible imagery and data. Um, but they're conscious of trying to avoid having another mission that just sucks up all the money. They want to be able to do other things as well. Um, so 
a replacement for Hubble is is the the big um, priority, uh, and the acknowledge that's going to be a flagship mission. They're looking at. Um, a minimum a six to eight meter optical telescope. Hubble's is two point four meters. Even JWST is only six point four meters. So this would be bigger than JWST. Uh, and they arrived at that size of telescope because that's the minimum size really uh, needed um, to observe directly observe exoplanets, Earth-sized exoplanets around other stars using a coronagraph to block the light of the star. Um, so. That's a good example of the the way they've tried to approach this decadal survey. Rather than throwing all the bells and whistles at these projects, they've tried to steer them more towards, well, what are our science goals? And what do we need to do to achieve those science goals? Um, and that's really focusing our ideas on what we want to do. Um, so... You know, the replacement for Hubble would be a flagship mission, another $10 billion mission. But they've introduced a new class of mission called the probe class. And this would cost a few few billion dollars. Uh, and, you know, this would be for X-ray and for the far infrared. And it would allow them to focus a little bit more on certain science goals, but still to get a mission out there so those communities don't miss out. Um, and the time frame for launching these missions would be in the 2040s because things like Hubble took 20, 25 years minimum to, to, you know, design and build and launch. Um, so it's still some way off in the future. Um, but, but now they have a plan and of course, you know, things can change. We might make, might make new discoveries, which changes our science goals. Um, but, but yeah, the idea is to develop these missions and to get them launched in the 2040s. So, so sort of more focused missions that are, are these going to sort of fill those gaps that you spoke about in the in the electromagnetic spectrum, where um, where maybe astronomers aren't seeing what they want, or in the future they won't be able to see because uh, a mission will shut down. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the ultraviolet coverage that I spoke about earlier that would be covered with the the optical telescope, and that would be the flagship mission, and that would be a more general purpose one that should be able to do everything, but but one of the main goals for it is imaging imaging exoplanets. Um, X-ray missions, so, so Chandra uh, is, you know, is aging uh, and we want a, a better X-ray telescope, one that's going to be able to probe into the hearts of supermassive black holes and figure out what's going on there in, in quasars and blazars. Um, and the far infrared, we currently don't have a far infrared telescope that can see you know, very cold dust, you know, the beginnings of star formation. Um, and these new missions, especially the probe class missions, would um, cover the sort of the X-ray and the far infrared wavelengths. Um, and, and one of the things that, that, you know, they're also keen to emphasize in the decadal survey is having these telescopes work together. It's no good launching, say, your far infrared telescope. And, and its lifetime will be limited by the amount of coolant it has on board. No point launching it. And then after six or seven years, it runs out of coolant. And you don't even have you know, your optical or your X-ray telescope launched at the same time to do observations in unison. So they're very keen on trying to get these missions up into space together so that they can perform multi-wavelength observations of the same objects and really see, you know, what's going on in different contexts. Um, and one of the things that I, you know, that I really like that's almost like romantic in a sense is they're calling these great observatories. So back when Hubble launched and Spitzer, Chandra, and the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, together they were called the great observatories. 
Um, so it's harking back to that time of, of those first space telescopes and just emphasizing how important these missions are going to be. And in terms of the science, Keith, you mentioned um, exoplanets. Obviously, astronomers are very, very keen on getting a, a better view on exoplanets. Um, are, are there some other um, sort of big, big scope uh, scientific aims that, uh, that the Decadal Survey addresses? Sure. So one of the things that they do talk about is this connection between supermassive black holes in the center of galaxies uh, and the galaxy environment around them. How does the black hole affect things like star formation in the galaxy? Um, an active black hole can produce lots of radiation feedback. Does, does that radiation wind, does that stir up more star formation? Or does it blow the gas needed for star formation out of the galaxy? So how do galaxies evolve and what role do black holes play? So that's one of the key astrophysics areas that they want to look at. And that would need multiple missions. That's going to need an X-ray mission to, to look at the activity of the black hole, an infrared mission to look within the dusty molecular clouds where stars are forming, obviously an optical mission to get you know a, a, a broader view of the galaxy. Um, you know, obviously there's the perennial objectives of better understanding things like dark matter and, and dark energy. Um, exoplanets, as you mentioned, hopefully, you know, we'd get images of of Earth-sized planets around other stars, you know, we wouldn't be able to see in detail, but it would be like a pinprick of light. But even from that, we can, you know, do uh, spectrographic um, observations and, and learn more about those planets. W one of the things about these missions is that they're going to last a long time. Hubble, as I mentioned, has been in space for 32 years and planning for that began in the 1960s. Um, so when Hubble launched, Black holes in the centers of galaxies were not confirmed. We thought they were there, but there was no proof. Hubble provided that proof. Exoplanets hadn't even been discovered when Hubble launched. So, you know, the idea of using Hubble to study exoplanets wasn't even on the drawing board. And, you know, if we're launching these new telescopes in the 2040s, it's conceivable that they will still be in operation in the 2070s and the 2080s. So the scientists on the decadal reviews and planning these missions really have to think far ahead. Um, you know, what will be the science goals in the second half of this century? Um, and obviously, you know, we could make discoveries that change those. So there has to be a degree of adaptability, but it, it really is far reaching and far thinking. Um, and that's just what makes it so exciting. You know, we're talking about science that's going to be done towards the end of this century. Um, and who knows what discoveries those they will be making in the future. It's really exciting. And Keith, now that we, we've got you on the podcast, um, I, I'm, I'm also keen to, to chat with you about um, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligent life. Um, you've written a book that's called The Contact Paradox, Challenging Our Assumptions in Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And, and the book looks at whether it's a good idea for humans to seek out alien civilizations and what might happen um, if contact was made. So, so Keith, what's your, what, what's your personal view on this? Do you, do you think it's a good idea for us to, um, to, I don't know, be sending messages out into space in the hopes um, that they'll be seen by um, alien civilizations? Is that, I mean, that might not, uh, that might not turn out to our benefit. Um, at least that's my worry. I, I think this is a multifaceted question. Um, and I think... You know, doing SETI, just looking for radio signals or techno signatures, 
I think that's one thing. You know, if we detect a radio signal, for example, the chances are we're not going to be able to decipher it, certainly not straight away anyway. We'd, we'd have no context for any kind of alien language. Who knows if, you know, they share the same understanding of maths and science that we do. Um, and we don't have to reply. You know, they wouldn't necessarily know we're here. Um, but with sending messages, we're, we're basically, it's like a lighthouse saying, we're here, you know. Um, and there's been a lot said about, you know, Stephen Hawking, you know, famously talked about, you know, he drew analogies with the, the Europeans going to the Americas and, you know, lots of the indigenous populations that died, partly through violence, partly through diseases brought from Europe. Um, and, you know, people who, who, you know, do want to send messages and get, you know, if there are any alien life forms out there, get their attention. You know, they say, well, there's, the distances between the stars are too great. They're not going to be invaders or bring diseases or anything like that. And that's true. But, you know, my concern would be ourselves and how our society would react to um, contact. Um, you know, just the knowledge that there's life out there, you know, that would be something to be rejoiced. I, I, you know, that's great. But... You know, if, if, for example, they gave us te technology that could be disruptive, how would that affect our society? We, we see how our own technology is disruptive, you know, things like Internet, you know, even just like the motor car, you know, produces an environmental concern. Um, and that's technology that we've developed. So if you, you know, let's I always use the analogy of the Star Trek replicator, which can make anything. So if aliens gave us that kind of technology, how would that affect our economy, our industry? Um, you know, people's livelihoods. And none of that is really thought about when people talk about contacting extraterrestrial life. Um, yeah, I, I was speaking to um, some anthropologists and astronomers recently who've written some papers, uh, conflicting papers, on, on whether human geopolitics would cause problems in a contact event. You know, if, if say, a radio telescope in the United States detected a signal, would a... a Another country, maybe a bit paranoid, think that the US are keeping some of the information for themselves. Would they embark on espionage? Um, which sounds like a you know a Hollywood thriller, but this was a genuine concern exp expressed by by some people in the SETI community. So there's you know there's all kinds of things to consider with contact. It isn't as simple as oh they're going to invade or they're not going to invade or they're going to be like ET or they're going to be like alien or whatever. It's 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 very much how we react. And I think by studying various contact situations, we can learn we can learn things about ourselves. We can look back through history when different human societies have encountered other human societies and how those contact events have gone down. We can learn something about ourselves in the process. So so even if there are no intelligent alien life forms out there you know we're still going to learn about ourselves in the, in the you know just by studying this um my personal opinion is that we're not ready for that kind of contact um of course how do you prepare yourself for that you you can't really um i mean you know you can get your anthropologists and historians and scientists and social scientists all together in a big think tank and come up with a, you know as many possible um scenarios as, as they can think of um and try and prepare for it but it you know it's, until it happens you just don't know how we're going to react what the what the consequences would be 
Um, but, you know, I absolutely keep doing SETI, keep looking. Because if we find alien life, you know, if we detect a radio signal, if we find a Dyson sphere or whatever, you know, I, I think that's that's going to be so important because if you look at the world around us, everything's a little bit doom and gloom. We have climate change, pandemics, war. You know, there's no guarantee that we're going to see out, you know, see out this decade, never mind this century. And I think if we discovered another species, another society that had maybe got through these adolescent troubles and, you know, had survived for thousands, maybe millions of years, you know, it tells us that it is possible to have, you know, a positive future when that where we don't blow ourselves up or wipe ourselves out. Um, and just knowing that, that it is possible might just give us a little bit of hope. Um, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. We may not, we may be alone in the universe. You know, a lot of people talk about SETI as if, you know, people who do SETI are like, treat it as a religion when there's no proof that there are aliens out there. And, you know, to be entirely open to the possibility that we're alone. And then even then, you know, preserving life on Earth becomes even more important because if if this is the only abode for life in the universe, we have to look after it. Um, so, yeah, keep looking. You know, the study of exoplanets, you know, what we've been talking about with, you know, these next generation telescopes, what James Webb Space Telescope is doing right now, you know, characterizing the atmospheres. You know, if, if there's life out there, you know, say within 50 light years on a planet, I'm hopeful that by the end of the century, we will have found it. And, you know, we can learn from a distance what it's going to be like. And, and if it's intelligent, we can make a more informed decision about whether we want to make contact or not. Um, so, yeah, it's a really exciting time. And uh, I just hope I'm still alive to to see a discovery. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> me too as well. I mean, it would be amazing to, uh, you know, to have some sort of confirmation that, that life exists uh, on another planet. And who knows, maybe the, the next generation of, uh, of, of telescopes, one of them will be able to do that. You can read Keith's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Great Observatories, the next generation of NASA's space telescopes and their impact on the next century of observational astronomy. Thanks for being on the podcast, Keith. Thank you, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Adrian Mancuso and Keith Cooper for joining me. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week with an expert on the physics of vehicle collisions. He'll explain how classical mechanics is being used to reduce insurance fraud. Looking a bit further into the future, Physics World is celebrating women in medical physics with a series of online lectures that will begin in mid-December and run until March of next year. First up is Daphne Levin from the Asuta Medical Center in Tel Aviv, Israel. On the 14th of December, Levin will talk about MRI-guided radiation therapy, and you can sign up to watch her lecture free of charge on the Physics World website. Just go to the webinars page and look for the headline, Implementing a Meridian Program. And if you're busy on the 14th, don't worry, the webinar will be available to watch at a later time. Physics World.